This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner. Good evening, ladies and germs. Is it like an MP3 file in here, or is it just me? Take my killer hurts. Please. I met a lady bot the other day, and she said let's go back to your place. I replied, do you mean, the recycle bin? Oh Dudley, your act needs work. Maybe you should talk to today's guest, Howie Fox. That's a capital idea. Maybe he can explain why the chicken crossed the road. Or why there's a Yeti, outside the Sherpa chalet. That's no Yeti. That's a Sherpa without his shirt on. Oh my. Well, thanks for that answer. Guess it's time for a promo before I get queasy. Attention rebels of the Sherpolution. Today's podcast is being brought to you by Audible. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com Sherpa. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And now Mr. Bruce will lead you into the Sherpa Chalet. As a reminder, the restrooms are located near the yellow snow. Coming to you from Sherpa Chalet in beautiful downtown Mount Podcastia, it's time for entertainment interviews in the Sherpa screening room. Grab an aisle seat and a bucket of popcorn, but don't crunch too loud or you'll miss the show. Now, here's your host, Jim, the podcast Sherpa. Hey, thank you, Mr. Bruce, and welcome to the Sherpa Screening Room version of Too Many Podcasts. It's me, once again, we're back for, what are you, a comedian week? And I am Jim, the podcast Sherpa. Should I just say Jim, your comedy MC for the week? I don't know. I don't know if that sounds good. But anyway, Jim, the podcast Sherpa. Yes, that's me. Okay, right here. And today's guest is a comedy writer and a very funny guy who is also a columnist. His name is Howie Fox. And we had a really enjoyable conversation about classic comedy and comedy writing. I think you'll really enjoy it. We also got into talking about music, and he's a big Beatles fan, just like me. So we talked a little bit about the Beatles as well, but it's mostly about comedy. And I think you'll find him really nice guy and very funny as well. So why don't we head on down to the listening room at the Sherpa Chalet and have a listen to my conversation with Howie Fox. Hello there, Rebels. I am with a guy named Howie Fox, and he is a comedy writer for a lot of different outlets, and we're going to talk to him a little bit about the art of writing comedy, being funny, and um, maybe some tax tips or something like that. I don't know. What else What else do you have to offer, Howie? No, I have no tips on taxes or anything like that. Um, you, know, the, the, you know, like an old joke, the, the only... Uh, uh, tips that I know about are from the you know the rabbi when he's doing a bris, um, <laughs> and we're off. <laughs> and we're off. It's the only tips I can give anybody. Well, I, I can't. <laughs> I'm not a rabbi. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So why don't you talk a little bit about yourself so we can kind of get to know you? Okay, I write comedy on the side. Uh, I work in film distribution uh, full time. I've written for comics, uh, mostly local comics uh, over the years, whether it's just a couple of jokes. I've fixed up somebody's act 
tweak that for them, you know, which is kind of fine. But nowadays, there's less and less comics who are looking for uh, somebody to contribute material. Uh, everybody kind of wants to write their own stuff. And uh, that's fine. You know, whenever I can get, get a gig and make a few bucks or a Starbucks gift card as payment, I don't care. Uh, but it's fine with me. It's fine. I like being creative. I have this column, as you know, in the uh, Tulukan Times in uh, Los Angeles, that's in Toluca Lake, called the Comical Week in Review. It's basically the topical jokes that I'll post and try out on social media. I will see how they go. Then I do a version on Sunday nights on Facebook at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time where I'll tweak them, fix them, get rid of things that I know didn't go over well during the week. And then I use an edit of that for the newspaper. But the newspaper now, with the COVID shutdown, they're not publishing right now. So, uh, But they, you can find um, some of my columns online. If you go to the tokentimes.com, uh, uh, I think it is, and you look under my name, you'll see uh, the columns I did up until a couple of weeks ago when they shut down. Uh, so if anybody wants to check those out, you know, be my guest. Were you ever a stand-up comic on your own or was, did it just well, kind of start I, from here? Well, I did some very long time ago, like in college. And it was good, but um, I've always had this fear. Even though I was taking acting and theater um, uh, my first few years of college, <laughs> I had the worst memory. I mean, to, me to memorize a play I, I, it wasn't like an impossibility. It's a major feat, sort of like get an act going that's not like a script where there's a first act per se, second act, there's characters. If somebody says something, you get lost, you kind of know where you're going. But now in your mind, you're that only one person. You're like that one man show and you have to know, you know, so you try to structure it in, 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 to some extent so maybe you won't get lost. But I didn't learn that lesson then and I was like, okay, you know. What do I do? I felt embarrassed because I kind of referred to some notes and I felt that's not being professional. And I was so mad at myself for doing that, that um, I kind of, you know, veered away, got into writings, writing scripts, spec scripts, had a couple of close calls with uh, Saturday Night Live in 83, Letterman in 83, went up to the offices. But of course, everybody was either moving on for the next season or, you know, my material maybe was not good enough, but it got me to that level of being seen and passed around. And then after that, it was just writing for some local comics, raising a family, and then using the social media platforms now to reintroduce myself to people, comedy, comic writers, comedians. And um, it, it's been fun. Um, I was doing a radio show as a contributor, The Absurd Minute, for Juliana Forlano on WBAI in New York. It was a political activist show. But she had a thing called the Absurd Minute. So I contributed with other people to um, that weekly where she'd r rattle off, you know, political one-liners that we would all give her. And uh, that was a fun, fun thing to do. But um, right now it's very quiet. You know, comics can't perform. You know, some of them try to do the Zoom thing, but I think a lot of them are very critical of how it's turning out. No audience, and you're basically playing to the eight other comedians that are there. <laughs> Um, it's almost like a bringer show, which it's your friends who are comics. It's great. I, I like it. And I just wish I could do more. And I wish I could do it full time. Yeah, well, it is a hard business to get into. Like you said, sometimes it's all about the timing or, right. or even who you're working with. You know, you may find a great comic who you think is going to be on their way up and they might be on their way out. Right, right. And, and, you know, it's also the matter of, as they say, you know, all these years, it's who you know sometimes. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I went to Harvard and I worked for the Lampoon, 
<laughs> I'd be, you know, I would have written for Letterman. I would have written for, uh, hopefully, you know, some other big show. Uh, would have been kind of cool. But um, it didn't happen. Didn't have those connections. You know, you can have all the talent in the world, but still it's a matter of who you know and what you know and timing. I just wish all those three, I was on a different level. But you know what? I'm happy. I like writing. I like uh, making people laugh on social media, getting comics to say, hey, that's really good. Can I use that? Fine. Or can you write me something like that? That makes me feel good. It knows that I've done the right thing. I'm on the right path. Growing up, who were your comic inspirations? Oh, growing up and to this day, I'm like an old timer because when I grew up, you know, it was like late 60s and 70s when you had just a few major you know, TV stations in the major markets, an NBC, a CBS, uh, you know, PBS, um, they played the Laurel and Hardys, the Little Rascals, the W.C. Fields, Humphrey Bogart movies. You saw everything on a regular channel quite a few times a week. Um, but my big ones, when I was about 10 years old, I've always liked the, you know, the variety shows on TV, the Dean Martin shows, the Red Skelton shows, Danny Kay, and watching all that in the 60s and Jack Benny and Bob Hope especially. And then one day I watched, well, it was two days in a row, I think. One of the channels was playing Road to Morocco, you know, the, the Hope and Crosby Road picture, and then Bob Hope's The Pale Face. I was like stunned. I was like, these are great. These are great movies. You know, they're funny. They're great. The, the lines are witty. Sight gags, you know, it's all combined. And uh, I just became a big fan of him and his, his, his timing. He, he would do political jokes, but it wasn't one-sided, even though he was a Republican. Made fun of every president, but it was all good nature. Dean Martin show and all that. Then, you know, when I was a kid, Jerry Lewis was big. I remember being eight years old, you know, going to my local um, theater in Spring Valley, New York. Matinees of Jerry Lewis. My mother would drop me and my friend Jeffrey Outside the movie theater, eight years old. Goodbye, I'll pick you up after the movie. Eight years old. You go into the movie, you watch it, have your popcorn and soda, come out, wait for your mom to pick you up. Today, that wouldn't happen. You wouldn't send an eight-year-old to a theater or a multiplex or anything alone, right? And, and it was just, you know, all that classic comedy. But then also as a teenager, I was growing up with the Richard Pryors, you know, the Bill Cosbys, Steve Martins, Rodney Dangerfields, John Rivers, um, who are all, you know, either one-liners like Rodney and, and Joan, and then the socially aware, the George Carlins, Robert Klein's, you know, uh, Alan King, all these comics that people are forgetting about. But they were trendsetters, Bob Newhart. You know, it's uh, stuff that people don't hear anymore, but they are still funny. You can get a comedy album today of theirs and listen to it and be rolling on the floor laughing. But today I've listened to some comedy albums by people and I go, yeah, it's not bad, not bad. But I don't know if you remember back in your day when comedy albums were big. Sure. What did you do? You listened to a couple of times. You called your friends over. You got to hear this. And you'd have three or four friends sitting in your bedroom. You had the album on the stereo. You're laughing your butt off. And you'd listen to it again and again. And then you'd go somewhere. Okay, remember that joke he told you or that routine? You know, there was such a, uh, a camaraderie that grew out of that and a, uh, you know, a togetherness with friends. Um, and you don't get that. Everybody's on their, their headphones. And if they want to listen to something funny, they're not going to do it with, hey, come on over, listen to the new album. And they'll, they'll say, hey, listen, go download that and listen to it. You know? It's not the same. But it's more fun when you laugh with your friends. Yeah. When we grew up, it, it's more of a communal thing. But like you said, yes. bringing it all together. And even like with, right. with the comedy clubs, when you were old enough to go into a club and see a comedian, 
there right. was you know that very strong following that that was in the audience too. It wasn't just people who, well, we didn't have anything to do, so we decided to come in and right. check this guy out. Yeah, yeah, and and, and those were, were good days. The clubs were really good. I mean, they had some very big names, but there were less people doing the art of comedy. Um, as the eighties went on, there was a plural, proliferation of, of clubs. Mm-hmm. And comics. And I used to go to a lot of shows. But, you know, one of the things that I always hated, I always wished it was sort of like a theater, per se, where it wasn't the two-drink minimum. And then you got these, you know, you're going to get a couple of guys that are so drunk, they're going to be harassing the comic. I just want to hear the show. I don't want to hear some heckler, you know. Every once in a while, it's fun, but you got to be a good, uh, you got to have a good comeback. I mean, I saw Don Rickles in concert for my high school graduation. And we were praying, me and my friend Joel were praying. We were kind of midway close up. Oh my God, please don't look our way. Don't pick on us. Don't pick on us. You know what I mean? But I mean, no matter what you would say to somebody like that, he would, he would bury you. You know, if he just put you in the ground, you know, I never laughed so hard in my life at a concert, a comedy concert. That was one of the best things I've ever seen is Don Rickles just rip everybody. And everybody knew it was fun and nobody was politically correct to get upset and say, how could you? They knew it was just a joke. They knew it was fun and there was no malice. That's funny that you should bring that up because I was actually segueing into my next question. How, how did you feel about political correctness? Now, you were doing jokes for a woman who holds a politically oriented radio show. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, and those were, were left-wing stuff. You know, you know they, they were basically that. So there was a thing that you tailor it for, which is fine. But today, everybody's so sensitive and uptight I mean, look what's happening with the new Looney Tunes cartoons Warner Brothers is premiering. Oh, my God. You can't have um, uh, Elmer Fudd with a gun and Yosemite Sam has no guns. I understand the culture, what it's like now. But if it's going to be Looney Tunes and that's what they are and that's part of their character, you know, I mean, I remember watching some Looney Tunes where they they basically commit suicide. They literally put a gun to the head. Uh, There's one one cartoon with a gun. This dog loses out to bugs and he puts a gun to his own head, bam, falls to the ground. And then he sticks his head up, looks at the camera. This shouldn't happen to a dog. You know, I mean, as a kid, I mean, you know, it's not real. And you know, it's a cartoon and you laugh. You know, it's a little aside to the camera. It, it, it was hysterical. I mean, when you were younger, remember those things, the three stooges there, they're going to cause violence and blah, blah, blah. Who went around, did an eye poke? Who went around and, you know, slapstick it and really hurting anybody? You knew it was fake. You knew it was it was unreal. It, it just wasn't, you know, that's it. It wasn't real. Yeah. Man, was man arrested for starting a, a pie fight in a high-class restaurant. You know, that doesn't ever that's happen. That's right. That's right. You know, it's not those little cream things. You know, you're throwing an apple pie. That's going to hurt. <laughs> I got a blueberry stuck in my eye, you know. I have to sue now. <laughs> That's right. I got apple cobbler up my nose. I can't get it out. You know, I need, you know, nasal surgery or something. You know? When you talk about Bugs Bunny, if you hear the old interviews with the animators, they'll tell you, we didn't do these for kids. We did it to amuse ourselves. Right, right. And, and the adults in the audience, I mean, you watch it today. Yeah, because it's a cartoon, you know, they, they, it's like kids and it's on the Cartoon Network, they'll play some of those things. But the, the comedy is rooted in vaudeville, things that you don't see in today's comedy, sight gags. Mm-hmm. You don't see that. I mean, maybe the Naked Gun movies, the, 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 you know, Mel Brooks movies, Monty Python, you'll see sight gags with dialogue. But today when I go watch a comedy, nobody knows how to incorporate sight gags, write sight gags, make, you know, 
anything funny and understand, you know, how to set up a good comedy. So I'll go out a lot of times and laugh maybe because it's stupid comedy or raunchy. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm shutting my mind off. I'm going to enjoy myself and be entertained. But it's certainly not something I'm coming back to. You know, like the old classics, you, you give me a W.C. Field to give me a Marx Brothers. Uh, the witticism, the gags, the, you know, the jokes, the Laurel and Hardys, um, the routines, Abbott and Costello, their early movies I love because they do their little burlesque routines, you know, the things with the ties or the, or the you know, Susquehanna hat company stuff, um, Niagara Falls, step by step, inch by inch, all that stuff. Nobody does comedy routines, you know, like that. Yeah. It, it just doesn't happen. And, and those things are just rooted in me and I, and I love it. I just wish, you know, some scripts I wrote that are sitting around, you know, are sort of in those veins. And I'd love to see something done in the classic comedy mode where you got great one-liners, you got great sight gags, um, but who can pull those off today? You know, are there the Bob Hopes, the Red Skeltons or the Danny Kays um, or, you know, Stan Laurels and all that to do that on film? The Jerry Lewis's, who, who really, in his, some of his early solo films are just, you know, incredible, you know. And I'm not French, so, you know, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> we be. <laughs> we be. You kind of think of, like, the pendulum of comedy, where you're talking about one side with, like, the classic comedy, the W.C. Fields, right. Marx Brothers, Abbott and Costello. And then right. towards the middle, you start to see it getting very edgy. And then sometimes to the, edgy to the point of offensive and then swinging over to, oh, you know, you can't say this, you can't say that. This is offensive to everyone. Right, right. So, so, so what do you do? I mean, it's almost like mid-30s when the Hayes office came into being, and then they had to censor everything. You can't insinuate this. You can't insinuate, you know, a woman can't sleep in the bed with the guy. You can't insinuate uh, um, marital, you know, bliss. I mean, a marital uh, infidelity. This is one joke I have. It's like a Rodney Dangefield type of joke. You do these things and people almost believe you. You try, like, I, I posted this joke a while ago. Last night, I asked my wife for sex. She said, not tonight, dear. I have a vibrator. You know, I like those type of one-liners. And I, I miss the Rodneys. I miss people telling jokes with a good setup and a good punchline. Not everything has to be like that, per se. But um, I like that. I miss Joan Rivers. I mean, when she butchered people... It, but it was in a different way. It wasn't like, uh, uh, you know, the Howard Stearns who would basically rip you apart. Uh, but she'll rip you apart, but you'll be laughing. I mean, laughing, you know, when she was, she was going after people. But I think towards the end when she died, people were, well, comedy was sort of starting to, people were, you know, politically correct, were starting to turn on the things she said, mm -hmm. which was a shame because she was a genius. You know, like, like her and the Rodneys were a class to themselves, uh, and, and, you know, if you go online and you watch some old Rivers routines uh, or the Rodney's from The Tonight Show, I could have heard them 800 times. I'm still crying from laughter. Yeah. They're that funny. When you talk about Joan Rivers and Dangerfield as well, and I think Bob Hope, they all had these cabinets with the drawers full of jokes right. with right. every topic. Right. So, you know, they must have had a real respect for the material that they were going to oh. hold on to it, not just some like, Oh, well, I said it once and I'm never right. going to say it again. Right, right. And that's the thing you do. Like, I try to archive my stuff, too, because I never know when I need to pull something out or use it or could be used, you know, anywhere. But like you talk about Bob Hope again, people say, ah, oh, he just depended on his writers. You know, yeah, he paid the right. And those are the, those type of comics. He had specials many times a year. He would go on different shows, uh, guest stars. And then <clears throat> he was always doing benefits and, and, and college shows 
or in concert. You know, you need material. You go through material, especially in the TV age. So he needed to have writers in the, in the radio days, the TV days. But as I've read things about him in the books I've had, Bob wasn't unable to write jokes. He would write jokes. There are jokes that in some, you'll see some examples online that he'll write jokes. He went somewhere and he wrote his own, in his own handwriting, he'll write a couple of jokes besides the writer's jokes, or he'll tweak those writer's jokes. You know, to be who he was, he didn't, he couldn't just have a sense of humor. He had to also be a funny man inherently inside, and he was. And I, I guess he knew what worked for him as well. Right, right, he did. I mean, I know the 70s, the late 60s, his stance about Vietnam was one thing, but the amazing thing was, as much as people didn't like his stance on that, it never hurt his ratings. His specials, the Christmas specials and all that, went through the roof. Very interesting. I mean, his later years, you know, I love the guy. Yeah, they were very uh, cut and paste, and... He didn't hear well and all that, but still, you know, I, I always thought of that as you know, a trooper, you know, he had it in his blood, like Paul McCartney, the Beatles. Until the COVID, he had to cancel his tour. He's going to be, what, 80 in another year or so? Ringo, you know, it's in their blood. That's what they do. The people show up, they enjoy it. Why not? Until you can't do it anymore. When you were talking about doing their own material versus others, uh, there was a country singer, George Strait, right. and when he put out his first box set, in the, I like reading like the liner notes because I'm a music yeah. nerd, and he said, all of my hits were written for me by other people. And he right. said, the first three songs on this CD were written by me. He says, now you understand why I don't write my own songs. <laughs> yeah, well, look <laughs> at Elvis. Elvis. Yeah, Elvis too. Elvis might have co-written one or two songs, and that's about it. But you look at this what's whatever the word is of of his, his his catalog from the Sundays to when he died. It's all contracted writers. Mm -hmm. They came and they presented him with songs that he liked that he knew was good for him, and he had he had a good sense of who he was and what would work. Sure. And that's amazing. Nothing wrong with having comedy writers. Just like think of all the great songwriters, the Liebers and Stollers, the folks in the Brill right. Building who wrote for all these artists and really made their careers. When you think about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was an incredible time of songwriting. Like the 60s was just an explosion of different genres and songs and stuff. I mean, I, I, when I go back, when I look at the 60s, and yeah, I'm a big Beatles fan, and I love the British Invasion and the Beach Boys and the Zombies and the Who and all that. But when you look at the charts, you had Motown, you had a Stack Soul, you had Herb Albert, you had a Sergio Mendez, you had Dean Martin on the charts throwing the Beatles off, it's, you know. Sinatra had pop hits with, with Nancy. You had stuff all over the place. Now it's all, as you know, um, formatted and segmented. And, you know, this station is only this, classic rock. This is oldies. This is just light jazz. This is classic jazz. This is top 40. This is R&B. But in those days, if they liked it, it got played. And it was like with comedy. I mean, you think back to that period. The show, you know, like I said, those big artists, the Bill Cosby's, the Carlin's and Shelley Berman's and all that. Mm -hmm. You know, there was this proliferation of different styles coming out, different avenues of comedy, playing alongside the older guys, okay, that were still on TV, and those older movies, and then you had the newer, you know, hipper movies in the late 60s, and, you know, comedy was changing. I heard it all. I heard the old stuff, and I heard the new stuff. For me, I was influenced from everything. It was great. Mm -hmm. Are there comics today that you admire? You know, I, I find myself less and less following comics. You know, in the old days, you've got some one or two guys would go on The Tonight Show 
And that was their big break. The next, the next week, they were signed and they're playing Vegas. And the, these uh, talk shows aren't putting the comics on. They're not a priority anymore to, to, to push these guys. I mean, Jim Gaffigan's good. I'm Papa. Yeah. Hysterical. Yeah. Hysterical. And in fact, he's from my area, I think, of Rockland County, New York. He impressed me. I mean, he was really good. He was, the jokes are about family and, and, and raising kids and, and, you know, the whole thing. And very relatable stuff to everybody in the audience, um, which, which I like. But, you know, there, there's no, you know, like Seinfeld is still like, I got to catch this special. He has that special on Netflix. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, who's like a breakout comic I, I, that I want to follow and listen to? I think I'm sort of like zoned out on all that. I don't really know because to me, sometimes I hear these routines in comics and I go, heard a, I heard that 30 years ago. I heard, you know, that, that, that it's like, it's almost like nothing's new anymore. <laughs> but to the younger generation, they'll be, oh, this is our guy. This is great. And I'm like, well, I think George Carlin talked about that or Bill Cosby talked about that. I guess I zone out on it a little bit now. You know, you get older, you start, you know, you stick to what you like. (laughs) (laughs) I know the feeling, Howie. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, my wife's like, let's buy a new car. (laughs) What's wrong with the old Rambler we have, you know? (laughs) What's this FM radio that they're talking about here? That's right. (laughs) I understand that uh, both of us have a mutual love of the Beatles. Yep. I'm uh, not only a big fan, but a collector. You know, everything from the bootlegs to promos. I've been getting into last couple of years of vinyl variants and uh, some going back into the 60s and getting some promos that I always used to say, nah, I don't want that. But now I'm like, oh, I kind of want that because having that is when I look through my collection, it tells a story. So you could read about the, uh, which I'd love to get the Butcher Photo album, you know, but that's too expensive. But like I have the Penny Lane promo, the Green Capital promo with Penny Lane with the trumpet ending. To have that, you read about it, you hear about it, you know about it. You might even have it on bootleg or you might hear the download somewhere. But to have the actual piece in my hands, where it came from, that people talked about, is a cool thing. You know, that's why I still like physical media. I still like my CDs. Mm-hmm. Um, I download stuff. But it's not the same as, you know, going on my shelf, pulling off the CD, looking at the liner notes or the album. Because as somebody once told me, when you download things like music, it's just air, you know, with numbers technically, but it's air. You know, you don't physically have it. It's in there somewhere. My old computer was dying. I tried to put all my stuff on a, on a USB stick and it died right in the middle. I lost like 5,000 songs. I think I recovered 200 before it died. So I didn't want to go through that again on my computer and, you know, it's all download things and all that. But physical media, it's not going to crash, you know. You're talking to somebody who just completed a project of putting his 1,200 CDs in binders. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel your pain. (laughs) A friend of mine just did that. He he did that with his Beatles stuff. And uh, I said, I don't know if I could do that. I got stuff. In the cabinet, under the cabinet, halfway down in the basement, in the basement. And I'm like, I want to put shelving and stuff up here by the by the living room into the dining room. My wife says, this isn't a college dorm. <laughs> <laughs> no. And then when she goes downstairs, she goes, your, your chunk is all over the place. You know, like, well, what do you want me to do with it? Get rid of it. <laughs> like, no. She didn't put you on double secret probation or anything like that. <laughs> no, no. It's like, these are, I'm going in the grave with those things, you know? And she's like, well, 
you better make a list and tell me which are the ones that I can sell when you die. And I'm like, I don't know which are the bootlegs and which are the real things worth money. I'll just give them away. I go, don't you dare. <laughs> I said, one day I'll make a list. It's like saying one day I'll make a will. I haven't done that yet, you know. <laughs> I hate to be the right guy tonight. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's funny because I got, got my record collection and all these 45s I have. A lot of them aren't in protective sleeves, but they're in a plastic box. And I, wanted, I bought the sleeves for them mm-hmm. <laughs> months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done a thing. I just like, I know I'll enjoy it. I'll enjoy seeing my stuff again, but just to physically sit on the floor, put them in a sleeve, take the other one up in the sleeve. As soon as I got rid of the last of my vinyl, then vinyl came back in vogue. And I was like, really? <laughs> you know, it's funny. So like these record store day things I've been going to and, and picking up a couple of things and like the Beatle Fest, I'll go you know, get a couple of things or local stores if they have something interesting. But uh, I mean, I don't have a turntable that's working anymore. I mean, well, I have one, but to the basement. I have no room because when I had it, you know, if you were walking too heavy in the living room, you know, it would make the album skip. I didn't want to ruin, you know, whatever was left of the vinyl. So (laughs) I just tucked it away. And and usually the audio of everything that I do collect, I have on CD. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm happy with that. I know my CD isn't going to wear down from a needle you know and hopefully it'll last it won't rot and uh you know it'll be a permanent thing for a while hopefully hopefully they don't get rid of the you know the media the dvds blu-rays and all that i still like it next it's gonna be a little dry they're gonna put in your skull (laughs) yeah but but I, i think you know the feeling is like when you say you have a collection of dvds or cds or whatever you know some people say oh i'm a collector but they don't buy physical media it's all downloaded to me it's like is that collecting or just like gathering, you know, files or whatever, but it's not the same as actually having something physical in your hands. Yeah. I've always thought that way too. It's the tangible element that really makes you feel like this is something I have. Not like you said, not something you plucked out of the air. What's your favorite Beatle album? Well, you might relate to this, but people, people argue you because it's not a, a, a parlophone EMI. But to me, the Beatles second album on Capitol, I mean, I love Pepper, I love Abbey Road, but the second album after Meet the Beatles, the Capitol Comp that came out, it is probably the best rock and roll album you'll ever hear. Yeah, I think John Lennon's maybe only on one cut, but it's like a killer 30 minutes, just a killer 30 minutes. And it's just one that I put on it like, it, it just doesn't let go. It doesn't let go, it doesn't let up, and it, and it rocks, and it's fun, and, it, and it's joyous because I was a kid, I remember the joy, and I feel that joy from those early albums a lot. Well, you know, why don't we go back to comedy for a second? Because I know sure. <laughs> fine, we're both passionate about it, though. I get, I get your passion, Howie. I will play this back for my wife. I'll be like, "See, I'm not the only one." Or I'll play something. Listen, this is take three of "Can't Buy Me Love." You know, and she goes, "I don't care for the takeouts." I go, "That's Chinese food. This is an outtake, not a takeout." <laughs> They, they just kind of glaze over. Right. I go, oh, you hear that? You know, uh, that's a different guitar solo. That one, that has a cowbell in it, and the other one doesn't. Really? I go, yeah. You either have to really be into it and, and to appreciate. See, that's what I like about hearing um, artists' uh, outtakes, whether it's Dylan, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, all that studio stuff. And it's like uh, movies. I like collecting scripts. When I see an early draft of a movie or the scenes that were cut, I like seeing the creative process how take one became take eight and take eight was the was the final take that they decided to release i like hearing how they got from point a to point b same thing with writing i like seeing or the movie outtakes you know you like seeing 
oh, they'll play a couple outtakes and, and the scene wasn't quite right or they're breaking up and you see the inflection and the voice is different or the, the hand gestures are different, but you see how they're working on it to perfect it. And I love that aspect. Is there a comedian that, I mean, any comedian that, that you've admired, would, would there be any one in particular that you would like to have written for personally, living or, living oh, or dead? Oh, personally, I, th- I think, you know, all my friends online and people in the business know my main man was Bob Hope. To, go, to write a joke and, and have him say, but I want to tell you, would be, you know, heaven. To have somebody like that just, you know, say one of my jokes on a TV special. Or even Johnny Carson. I mean, I used to stay up every night when I could. If my mother didn't catch me and say, go to bed, you got school. I had to at least stay up for the monologue. Uh, that happened with Letterman. I would, got older than his original show at 1230. And then when he moved to CBS, I was watching him at least for the monologue. You know, the interviews were great. He's a great broadcaster like Carson. But people like that, I appreciate it because they understood the media. You know, Colbert, like I see some of these guys that host the shows, you see that they're like Jimmy Fallon to me. He's a great, he would be better in a, in a variety show. He does great sketches on his show. The interviews are just too loud and fawning and he's over everybody. Carson gave you breathing room. He let you say something. And if you had a routine, he'd let you go off in that comic routine. These guys cut you off. They jump on it. Like Colbert, I just I just feel like I see that they come from the improv as opposed to more of the stand-up. They like doing impersonations. They like doing characters. You know, those older artists were just about telling the joke. Like Letterman. Letterman really wasn't improv guy. He was a stand-up comic. Same with Jay Leno. Uh, great guy. I would love to have written for him, too. You know, guys who were just getting up there and telling jokes. The new crop is, like I said, I find it uncomfortable when I watch them tell a joke. I know how it isn't their best asset. That's just my opinion. Seth Myers, I think he's much better at telling a joke. He, he pulls it off much better. And Corden. Corden's really good, too. And Kimmel. Kimmel's also like a stand-up. I feel more comfortable watching their stand-up. You know what? Before I let you go, you want to throw one of your jokes at me from your... Column? Uh, let's see. I got a few things written out here. Uh, the U.S. economy added 2.5 million jobs. And those are just the people cleaning up from the looting. <laughs> I tell you, things are so bad now. Hookers are wearing N69 masks. <laughs> and the only thing missing, I think, from these crises is the Charlton Heston and the toga bit. <laughs> quick, quick little things. Like the other day, I, I kind of did this where somebody said, oh, you're edgy or going a little, you know, too too far with stuff, but, you know, it's social media, so I don't have to worry about so much editing, um, and I'm not going to, you know, be about cursing and just being vicious, but, you know, jokes like this, Lindsey Graham won't come out and admit he's gay, but he will tell you how he has all of Judy Garland's albums. <laughs> I think that's kind of tame, and I didn't, get, I didn't get hurt for that one on Twitter or, or uh, Facebook. <laughs> Okay. We'll keep you safe. Okay. Okay. So where can people see your stuff? What's the name of the okay. channel? My Twitter is Howie Fox, H-O-W-I-E-F-O-X jokes. One word, Howie Fox jokes. That's E-S uh, on Twitter. And then on uh, Facebook, you can follow my daily uh, postings and typos. On uh, You just look for Howie Fox. Um, you'll see my face, uh, hopefully on the profile picture. And on my profile behind it, there's uh, the Hollywood Hills picture. It says Comical Week in Review. So that's probably the best way to find me. And if anybody wants to, you know, come out on board, uh, have some fun, that's what it's about. You know, if I post a joke, I usually try to lay back and let other people come up with something else funny, something else funnier. 
and just have fun, you know, and especially in today's world, I'll just say my little uh, cliched philosophy. I really believe laughter is healing. It's medicine for the soul. No matter how bad it is, I've got to laugh and I like to make other people laugh. And if I could do that, I feel like I did a good deed and I did my job in life. I like that philosophy very much and a great way to wind down this interview. And you know, everybody, before you turn off this episode, make sure that you tip your waitresses because they've been very kind to you. So Howie, thank you. Try the veal. <laughs> That's right, try the veal. Thank you so much for swinging by. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So thank you, Mr. Howie Fox, for coming on down to the Sherpa Chalet and spending a little time for us. And you can check out Howie's handiwork in the links that we provided to you on the Sherpa Sheet. You know, if you're liking this show, uh, could you do me a little tiny favor? I ask a lot of little tiny favors, I know. Little, little, little tiny ones. So just go into Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or iHeartRadio.com and leave a nice word about the show. I saw a review and somebody just wrote, dope! And I'm thinking, I think that's good, so I'll take it. <laughs> he might be right on both accounts anyway. So, tomorrow, it's the third day of What Are You, A Comedian Week? And it's also our season four finale. And once again, we've got a good guest for our finale. This was a real treat. Mr. Bruce Valanche, that's right. Comedy writer extraordinaire. And he's done so much. And he's got a ton of stories. He was a real treat to speak with. I think you're really going to enjoy the interview. We covered a lot of different things. We talked about movies. We talked about TV, we talked about music, there's all sorts of stuff. And so make sure you tune in. And if you miss anything, you can hear it on any podcast app or on my website, sharepollution.com. And remember the word sharepollution, because if you want to follow me on social media, that's the word you need, sharepollution, one word, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Okay, make sure you come back next week. And like we said, don't forget to tip your waiters and waitresses. Thanks for listening to the Sherpa Screening Room. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. I'm Mr. Bruce, and this has been a Sherpa Loose Studios production. Viva la Sherpa Lution!